Good evening. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. On behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the Board of Directors, and the Board of Trustees, I welcome you here this evening to our Writers Live lecture series. This evening, we have the honor, I have the honor, actually, of introducing our author, Carl McCabe Booker, who is a former journalist and Washington, D.C. attorney. She is co-author with her husband, journalist Simeon Booker, of the highly acclaimed history, Shocking the Conscience, a Reporter's Account of the Civil Rights Movement. Carol Booker has written and edited for Voice of America, freelanced for the Washington Post, Reader's Digest, Ebony, Jet, and Black Stars. And she has reported from Africa, including the Nigerian war front for Westinghouse Broadcasting Company, Group W Station. It is my honor to welcome Carol McCabe Booker to talk about her new book, Alone Atop the Hill, the autobiography of Alice Dunnigan. Thank you very much, and thank all of you for coming out on a nasty night and for waiting for us, and I apologize for being late. It just took us two hours from Washington with a, a few other cars broken down, thank goodness, not us. A little fog, a little rain, a little traffic, but we're so happy to be here, and I appreciate your waiting for us. And I kept telling myself all the way up here, no matter what happens, Alice Dunnigan would not have given up because that was her mantra, you never give up. You just, oh my gosh, her, her song, her, her Negro spiritual that she believed in so much happened to be keep an inching along, and that's all we did on the BW Parkway. We just kept an inching along. But I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And you're going to hear tonight about perhaps the most famous journalist that you never heard of. Alice Dunnigan worked in a period that we don't pay too much attention to, especially when we're talking about civil rights. She, she was the Washington bureau chief for the Associated Negro Press from 1947 to 1961. And the tsunami of the civil rights movement afterwards sort of pushed anything that was going on during that period to the side. But there was a lot going on in civil rights at that time, here in Baltimore, as well as in Washington and other places. And Alice was right at the forefront of it. She is credited as being the journalist who did more to inform black America about what was going on in civil rights and the struggle for freedom and equality than any other journalist of that period. And one way that she did it was she reported for a news service that had 112 client newspapers across the country and 70 in West Africa, some of which translated the copy into French. So she had that exposure. She had access. She had front page uh, bylines in many newspapers across the country. But in 1974, she wrote an autobiography, and she called it A Black Woman's Experience from the Schoolhouse to the White House. She self-published it. 
And it got very good reviews. In fact, I brought up, when you get a chance, a review that was in the Baltimore Afro-American, among other newspapers that were part of the NNPA uh, news service. And it was a very good review. The book was well-received by those people who read it, but self-published, 670 pages. Not too many people read it. Alice was inducted into the Black Journalist Hall of Fame two years ago, the same night as my husband. And they had a lovely program with a video talking about her accomplishments, and they mentioned the book. I remembered having met her at one of Jet Magazine's famous Christmas parties, but I didn't, I hadn't, had never read the book. And I thought, well, this is, she's a very interesting woman. I'd like to read the book. Well, when I went looking for it, I found it was very hard to find. A few reference libraries, Library of Congress, Martin Luther King Library in Washington, the, the reference section, they had it. Or I went online to see if maybe I could get a used copy. Well, <laughs> even today... It's selling or it's being offered for sale from $245 to $330. So obviously, I did not run out to buy it. <laughs> I went to the Library of Congress. Fortunately, I live only a few blocks from there. And I read it, and it took several sessions because it was very long. And it's also very cold in there. They do that for the books, so you're freezing in there. So I had to go home after about an hour each time. But what I found was a really fascinating fascinating book. And that's why, frankly, I am not the author tonight. I'm only the editor. Alice Dunnigan wrote this book. She wrote it a little too long. 670 pages when you, you weren't, you know, President of the United States. It's a bit too long to expect anybody to, to be interested in your life. She wrote it in three parts. The first part was growing up in a border state. Kentucky, 1906 until she left in 1942. Second part was her career as a journalist in Washington, 14 years. Part three was her life after that, when she left journalism to join the government. She joined the Kennedy administration as a political appointee, stayed on through the Johnson administration. I found that part less compelling in part because that was the spoils of the battle. She had won. She had finally gotten a decent salary, having never made more than $50 a week working for ANP, and then some more from freelancing for the Afro, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Cleveland, um, the uh, Chicago Defender, Sepia Magazine, Service Magazine from Tuskegee. But she struggled so hard when she finally had a chance to join the government and get a good salary, she took it. And I can't blame her at all. But I worked in government for 20 years myself, and it, I had a been there, done that sense to the story. So I wanted to focus on the most fascinating parts, parts one and part two. And Alice asked us one favor in her book. She said, paraphrasing Fred, Frederick Douglass, do not judge me by the heights that I have reached, but by the depths from which I have come. And then she starts her story and tells us about the depths from which she came. 
born, as I said, in 1906, about two miles outside of Russellville, Kentucky, the uh, uh, county seat of Logan County, population 5,000. She, she lived outside on a hill where there were no other children, and she craved an education, I think, when she was just a little tyke, because that would get her into the company of other children. She'd have someone to play with. But pretty soon, she wanted an education for another reason. Because for a black girl in Kentucky, you had two choices as far as your career, your livelihood was concerned. One was to get a teaching certificate, and the other was to work as a domestic, taking care of white families, their children, cooking. She wasn't above doing any of that to work her way through school, but she did not want to do it for the rest of her life. Her father was a sharecropper. Her mother was a laundress. Her father dropped out of school in the sixth grade. Most black boys dropped out of school in the sixth grade. They were encouraged to, by society in general, to get out and work in the fields and prove their manliness. Her mother had never gotten past the third grade. And her mother always said she wished she could read better. She was more sympathetic to Alice when Alice insisted on going to school, walking those two miles in rain, fog, snow, and her father thought she was being foolish. Her mother would bundle her up and send her off. As she got to school, the other kids would kind of bully her. You know, it's, this is bullying is nothing new. When the, the kids were kind of mean, they called her a country bumpkin. They said she looked like a sausage and all bundled up. But she didn't care. She not only went to school, she stayed at the top of her class. The school for Negro children in Russellville was eight elementary grades, two high school grades, and then you graduated. She graduated valedictorian. And then her parents told her the bad news. They said they didn't have the money to send her on to further education. Well, Alice spent a terrible summer until she ran into the, school super, the Sunday school superintendent. I think we had a little divine intervention here. And he said, knowing that she had been valedictorian, Alice, where are you going on to school this fall? And she told him with tears in her eyes she wasn't going. Her parents couldn't afford it. And he said, tell them to come and see me. And they did a week later. And he said, if you don't send Alice on to school, it will be a crime. And in fact, if you need money, I'll, I'll provide the money. I'll lend it, but not to you. I'll lend it to Alice. And he said, I'm willing to bet on her. She'll pay me back. And if she doesn't, okay, I've lost the bet, but I don't think I will. So the next day, Alice is on the train with a couple of her uh, fellow graduates, and they're off to Frankfurt, about 200 miles away to Kentucky Normal and Industrial School, where they have a two-year program where you earn a teacher's certificate. Well, she works very hard. She struggles. She, she gets a, a job in the school, and uh, she can't make it to two years. She has to go home after one year because of a combination of health and finances. She talks the, um, the director of the school president of the school into taking a look at her grades and seeing if there's anything that can be done. Can she get a one-year certificate that will allow her to teach for two years in elementary school? Her grades are so good. She's the only girl ever to return to Russellville after one year of teacher training 
with a teacher certificate in hand. Well, the next thing is trying to find a job. Since there's only two choices for, for black girls, there are, there's an excess of, of teachers, but there aren't enough schools. So she's told over and over again, you're 18 years old, you're too young, you don't have any experience, we have no openings. Uh, she doesn't know what she's going to do. It's a miserable summer. She says it's the most miserable summer of her life. And then the day before Labor Day, where schools happen to open on Labor Day, they find out that a teacher in the next county, Todd County, has just died. There's no replacement for him. The superintendent there looks at the record. He sees Alice's application. It's the best one. He gets word to her. She's off the next day. <laughs> this is like, you know, have my bag ready, we'll travel. She's off the next day to Mount Pisgah, which is a tiny little hamlet about eight miles outside of the, the nearest big city. It's Trenton, Kentucky, a town of 800. And she gets there, and she writes a great chapter, The Ups and Downs of My First Job. I just want to tell you some of the ups and downs of her first job. She gets there. As a, Hamlet has about three houses surrounding this dilapidated one-room schoolhouse. This isn't a Rosenwald school yet. She works in Rosenwald schools later on, which were, as you know, better than what had existed in the South at the time. So she has to find housing. So her, her, her minister, Reverend Bigby, had driven her over there the 30 miles. Yeah, she has to live there. There's no commuting because, she says, for a Model T to travel 30 miles an hour would have been flying. So she had to, to live there. He finds a house for her with two elderly women who are willing to take her in. But their first objection is she's a city girl. They don't want... She's a city girl? No, she's from the city. We've done that before. We don't want anything more to do with teachers who are from the city. She won't like what we eat. She won't like it here. And he convinces them she's a country girl. She's born and raised in the country. She'll be fine. She'll even help you out. So she, they're convinced. They take her in for $16 a month. So then he takes her down to the schoolhouse. She can tell from the outside it's dilapidated. She's 18 years old. This is the incredible thing. This is why... When anybody talks about, and it's usually people who never knew her, uh, that she was timid or she was shy, this is baloney. Here you have, and that's why I, I want to tell this story. This, is, this tells you what she was like for the rest of her life. 18 years old, she walks into that schoolhouse, one room. The roof is leaking. There's a potbelly stove that's all gerrymandered up to the ceiling and obviously leaking. The floor dust rises as soon as you stepped on the unfinished floorboards. Instead of window panes in the two windows on either side, there's yellowing cardboard. And no desks. The kids are s sitting on uh, discarded church pews, all rough-hewn, carved-up church pews. And, of course, there were 65 students enrolled 45 normally attend, which was very good for a country school because of the distance they traveled and also that the parents had to keep them home for farm work. 
eight grades. She's one teacher, one room, eight grades, 45 students on average. And then, oh, the really good news, nobody has ever graduated from Mount Pisgah. She's convinced it's not because they're stupid. They have to pass a countywide test, the same for black and white kids. She comes to the conclusion there's a feeling of intimidation. They drop out. They don't take the test. They're not adequately prepared. She's got three girls in the class whose parents, when they see her, are like, wait a minute. She's got students older than she is. She's too young. Again, Reverend Bigby steps in, convinces them, no, she'll do fine. Girls are 16, 17, and 18 years old. And her primary goal, she establishes right then and there, she's going to get those three girls through that test. She's going to make that her goal. She's going to focus on it. Leaping ahead, she succeeds. She gets them through. She settles in there. She never complains. She never says anything because she's so proud to have that job after what she had gone through. One month goes by. She goes down to the County Board of Education to get her first paycheck. She brings with her a list, a long list of things that she wants to get improved in that school. After she picks up the paycheck, she walks into the superintendent's office with the list. He is not pleased that she is bringing him a list of things she wants corrected. But he listens, and the school gets a new roof. He gives her oil, the window panes. He realizes it's stupid to have cardboard over the windows. And he gives her some cheap oil to put on the floorboards because he realizes it's not too healthy for the kids to be breathing in this dust. And then he says that he happens to have some recycled desks. So if she can get somebody to come and haul them, she can get desks for the kids. And she does. That 18 years old. So that's the Alice Dunnigan that we're dealing with. Alice Dunnigan does very well as a teacher going from different counties, different schools, mainly not too far from her hometown of Russellville, for 18 years. And she's even written up in a white newspaper, which is very rare, and they write her up as the best rural school teacher. And she's, she's doing well, but what she can't stand is the complacency of the community. Now, it's a border state, which means it was one of the four states that did not secede from the Union, but it did allow slavery before the Civil War. It's, somebody described it as the Deep South. It's not the Deep South, and it's different in this respect. In 1920, when Alice was 14 years old, she recalls her mother and grandmother being very, very excited on Election Day because it was the first election in which women were allowed to vote. Because in 1919, the women's suffrage amendment to the Constitution had been adopted. And so on election day, her mother gets up and and walks to Russellville early to get there before the polls open. Her grandma is sick, so Alice stays home and takes care of her. And when she wrote the book, she's describing a 14-year-old taking care of her elderly grandma and a dying grandma, and... She doesn't go into something that immediately struck my mind, and that is, 
Alice's mother could vote, and that was a very Jim Crow state, but it was not Alabama. So almost 50 years later, you have Amelia Boynton, Annie Lee Cooper, and a crowd of other people getting mauled on the Edmund Pettus Bridge because they wanted to be able to vote. So Kentucky was a little bit different in at least that regard. But there was a complacency. Alice tried to get her uh, neighbors to organize. There was no NAACP in Russellville, no Urban League, no unions. And she and a relative who was a minister tried to get people together in an assembly one Sunday to agree that maids, cooks, for example, would not work below a certain minimum wage. And then there were neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, that never received mail, ostensibly because the roads aren't paved. Well, she said, let's agitate a little and get the roads paved. And there were neighborhoods without gas lines. So she, she wanted to get people organized to do something. She was an activist from when she was 12 years old. So that sounded fine, and people were nodding and agreeing, and then several of them went home, and the next day told their, their white employers that she was trying to turn them against them. Alice almost lost her job. And then she had another demeaning experience. That Alice was very much about respect and dignity. She had a very demeaning experience at a drugstore when she went in to get aspirin for a migraine headache. She was very sick after school one day. They sold her the aspirin. The clerk wouldn't sell her the Coca-Cola. She said, I'm not going to sit in a booth. I'm just going to drink it in the aisle to wash down the aspirin. He said, we don't serve colored here. She went outside and she got sick. She wasn't anonymous. She heard somebody say, ain't that the Adairville teacher? She was humiliated and horrified, and she decided right then and there she wanted out. She had had enough of this stifling environment of segregation. She prayed. She found an out. On the post office, the bulletin board, it announced a government recruitment effort for entry-level typists for the wartime effort in Washington. Well, she hauled her own typewriter in, she took the test, she passed the written part, the typewriter was not very good, she flunked the typing part, the postmaster was so impressed with how well she did on the written part, he told her, come on back and take the typing test again. She passed it. She received a telegram the Thursday, the, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, telling her to report to work Monday morning in Washington, D.C. Sunday she got on that train in Russellville, and she was inching along out of Kentucky and into what she calls a great new world. So at that point, 1942, I'm watching the clock here, she comes to Washington. She doesn't know anybody, and she has no place to stay. But a teacher had always said, if you're ever in that position, go to the YWCA. So she goes to the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA at 9th and Massachusetts, and the, she needs a reference. They wanted D.C. references. She didn't know anybody. So she, all she could do was think of three great people who had passed through Kentucky as uh, speakers, and she had just met them in passing. And she put their names down. Mary McLeod Bethune, Carter J. Woodson, and the grand exalted leader of the Elks. 
And that was all she needed. Nobody checked to find out if these people knew her. She knew they wouldn't. (laughs) But at least she knew the right names to put down. So after five years leaping ahead with the federal government, the war ended and her job was eliminated. While she was working with the government, she had freelanced for the Associated Negro Press. She had freelanced back in Kentucky, too, and worked summers in a newspaper up in um, Louisville, another one in Hopkinsville, about five or six Kentucky newspapers. So she wanted, ever since she was a child, not only to be a teacher, but to be a journalist. But she says in the book, she doesn't know why she wanted to be a journalist. She doesn't know where the idea came from because there were no black newspapers in Logan County and there was no black presence in the white newspapers. But somehow she, somehow she got the idea that she wanted to do that. So at the same time that she was out of a job, Claude Barnett, who in 1919 had founded the Associated Negro Press, was also looking for a Washington bureau chief. Now, they call it bureau chief, but it was a one-person operation. And he had offered the job to two men who had turned it down. And Alice persisted, and he agreed to give her a trial period at one-half cent a word. And after a month of that, she said, nobody can live on this. And he doubled it to one cent a word. And she said, this isn't working out either. So then he offered her a salary, and it was a fraction of what he had offered those two men. Of course, she never knew that. But she went to work for him, and his idea was to you know, get the news from chauffeurs and rewrite the Washington Post. The ANP had become known as the Associated Clipping Service. It was such a rewrite operation. She didn't want to cover the news that way. But her first assignment was the Senate debate on the ouster of Senator uh, Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi, who had been co- convicted of corruption charges. And she went up to the Capitol, and she's waiting in line. She got a ticket to the visitor's gallery from her senator, and she's waiting and waiting, and she realizes she's going to miss it. She's not going to get in. And she's talking to people, and she finds out, you're not supposed to take notes in the visitor's gallery anyway. So she's completely frustrated when she notices these men walking by with press passes on, and they're walking up a stairway behind a red velvet cordon and two Capitol policemen, and she says, hmm, let me try this. So she goes walking up there. This is not a shy woman. She goes walking up, and the policemen say, where are you going? And she says, I'm going where they're going. And they explain, well, that's uh, the, the press, and she pulls out her A&P press pass, and I happen to have on this board a copy of her A&P press pass, a later one, but same, same idea. And they say, well, we don't think you belong up there, but they'll take care of it if, if you don't. So she goes up. She finds out you have to be a member of the Capitol Press Gallery. And she says, well, what does it take? And they say, well... Actually, we have too many now. We don't really have space for anyone else. And she says, hmm, and how many are Negroes? Well, (laughs) that changes the whole dynamic because suddenly it's not a question of numbers. There's another angle here. Well, they give her an application, and she fills it out. It turns out 
that they were only admitting representatives of the daily press, which eliminated any black newspapers or newsmen because the black papers were mainly weeklies. And she was working for a news service and she wasn't admitted either. The NNPA had been trying to get somebody in there, but those were the rules. Well, Alice was persistent. She's not aggressive. She's not gregarious. She's not pushy. She's just persistent. And she tells Claude Barnett, her boss, that she needs a letter of recommendation. Claude Barnett is a sexist. I mean, he, he really out and out for years was a terrible sexist, but he was not atypical. That's the way it was. M magazine surveys quoted in the book showed that uh, most male editors said they'd hire a man over a woman if they could. That's the way it was. So she, she persisted. He gives her the letter, finally. Um, she gets the rules changed. They actually have hearings, and they change the rules so that a, black new, a, a news service can be admitted. Well, then she's not the first one in, the NNPA's representative is, because... Claude Barnett admits he was reluctant to send the letter in because he thought she couldn't do the job. Well, she gets in, and then she's not satisfied with that, as she shouldn't be. She goes over to the White House, and she gets an appointment with President Truman's press secretary, Charlie Ross, and she thinks she's going to have a hard time. And she says to him, now, you know, the Republican Senate is getting the credit for allowing Negroes into the Senate press gallery. What is the Democratic administration going to do? And he says, well, just submit a letter. She, she submits a letter, and she becomes the first black woman admitted to the White House press. Well, I'm running out of time, but I want to tell you her major story. Soon after that, she sees another announcement on the wall in the press office for a trip with President Truman. And she says to Charlie Ross, what do you have to do to get on that? And he says, well, it's just $1,000 for each reporter. She's surprised. She thought the White House would pay for that, but each uh, member, uh, each news organization pays for their own. So she goes back to Claude Barnett, and he says, women don't take trips like that. Well, she says... She wants to take the trip. And he says, is it worth $1,000 to you? And she says, yes, it is. And he says, well, it's not worth $1,000 to me. So, again, flipping forward, she, she pays for the trip herself. And it turns out to be a great big breakthrough. And she's in Missoula, Montana, and the, the train isn't even supposed to stop. It's midnight, but there are, it's a college town, and students come out to the tracks. They want to see the president. Truman decides to stop the train. He comes out on the platform at the rear of the train in his pajamas and robe, and he gives a little speech, and the students start asking questions. Up to then, no discussion of civil rights because politicians didn't discuss it. It was not a popular topic, even though it was the number one topic for the black press. So the students, one student raises his hand and says, Mr. President, what do you say about civil rights? And Truman responds, 
I say civil rights is as old as the Constitution of the United States and as new as the Democratic platform of 1944. And then he intimates that it will be renewed in the platform of 1948. The headline on Alice's exclusive scoop for the black press is Pajama-clad President Defends Civil Rights at Midnight. And Alice is on her way. And I'd be glad to take your questions. Uh, you, time ran out. It was wonderful. You could have gone on for a while, as far as I was concerned. <clears throat> but you stopped in 48, and you mentioned that she reported from 47 through 61. So you have things like Truman integrating the military. You have Brown v. Board. You have Little Rock. You yes. have um, Montgomery Bus Boycott. Talk a little bit about... I assume she covered these from a Washington perspective. How she, yes. what she reported. Yes, well, people have asked me, after I tell them who she was, they say, well, what, well, what kinds of stories did she write? So I brought along a sampling of headlines. She covered everything. She covered Little Rock from the perspective of Daisy Bates saying the troops have to stay. So there's one headline there. Daisy Bates says the troops have to stay. She covered the Till trial from the perspective of the FBI considering it a hot potato and thinking that Mamie Till Bradley is communist-influenced. She covered Martin Luther King. You know, it's interesting, on PBS the other night, uh, Gwen Ifill had an interview with the author of a book about Ethel Payne, who followed Alice by seven years, and Alice mentored her, and they were very good friends. And they had some footage of Martin Luther King, and I called them and asked them where it was. It looks like he was older than at the Montgomery bus boycott. It could have been toward the end. But there, right behind him, in the street, as he's talking presumably to press, is Alice Donegan. So she, she covered everything. She was, she was right there, and she covered every presidential news conference. Eisenhower had, you know, on and off, roughly one a week. And she did fine with Truman. She'd ask him a question on civil rights, and you know, Harry Truman, he was right out there. You know, yes or no, no comment, or he had an answer. Eisenhower did not want questions on civil rights. He did not welcome them, and he got mad. So he would belittle her sometimes with her questions, and then he stopped, stopped recognizing her. There was one news conference where another reporter said, do you know how many times you stood up, you know, Mr. President? She said, no, I wasn't counting. He said, 15 times. Well, by then, the white press in, in the room recognized Eisenhower was ignoring her. He's just looking right past her. She still kept coming. He also got mad at Ethel Payne, who started covering the White House in 54. Well, they got real rough with Ethel, and they decided to audit her income taxes and, and question her outside activities. Ethel just said, out of here, and decided there was plenty of other things to cover other than news conferences where you're going to be ignored. But Alice kept on, on going until the first Kennedy news conference in 
January of 1961, Alice is the first woman and the first black reporter called on by John F. Kennedy, eight minutes into that news conference. And her question, you can hear it online. This is one of the great things about the Internet. Go to the JFK Library, go to press conferences, January 26, 1961, eight minutes in, and he recognizes her, and she says, is the administration, in this lovely Kentucky drawl, which I cannot do, she says, is the administration going to do anything to help the black farmers in Fayette County, Tennessee, who have been evicted from their homes because they, they dared to vote in the last election and are now forced to live in tents? And Kennedy comes back forcefully, says, yes, he says, I voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1957, and da-da-da-da-da-da, and the Justice Department will pursue this with all vigor. <laughs> Typical of his Boston accent. Does that answer your question? That's okay? Okay. There's plenty more in the book. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think you somewhat alluded to it. Um, and you kind of mentioned the need to write a book that was more readable other than the 600 pages. Looks like yours is a few, couple well, hundred, I didn't two, write it now. No, well, I edited it, but I mean, you edited it Somebody down, said so. I used a machete. Uh, uh, I, I really didn't. I think a scalpel. Probably, a, scalpel. probably a rewrite, but we, we, no, that's, we won't argue no, semantics. No, okay. she, I was so okay. impressed with what she wrote, mm -hmm. how she wrote it, as well as what she wrote about that I just determined Alice deserves to be heard in her own voice before somebody eventually comes along and decides to take it, cherry-pick it for all the good stories, and there's one after the other, and writes a biography. Okay. I don't want credit for this book. That's okay. why my name is so tiny on there. And hers is big. She wrote it. Well, it, it, to, to me, it's important. I'm very familiar with the subject. I know the work of your husband. I know Moses personally. Uh, knew Mal Good. Many of the, the pioneers of the black press. I guess the question I ask is, why is she so little known? Uh, Ethel Payne, I even knew of. Um, uh, she was just, uh, to be honest with you, uh, and Moses knows I, I know a little bit about the, the black press and the work that the great men like your husband and he, he did uh, during very perilous times. Why was she not known and the need for you to, to do what you're doing? Well, one, she's very well known in Kentucky. Kentucky's very proud of her. There's a historic marker on the highway there's uh, on the Kentucky State University, which is the successor to the school she went to, they note her on their website as one of their famous graduates, along with Monita Sleet, the famous Pulitzer Prize winning photographer from Ebony, and Whitney Young. And her home down in Russellville is now a museum. And in fact, our first book tour was to Kentucky and we got 45 minutes from Frankfurt when we hit a whiteout, and they called us and said all the events were canceled. So tonight was nothing compared with the snow that we ran into out there. So weather is not with us. So she's not forgotten there. Uh, in Washington, 
I think part of why she's not remembered is one, the period, and as compared to Ethel, well, Ethel was, was there from 54 through the 60s, and Ethel was um, very popular. Everybody loved Ethel Payne. Alice loved Ethel Payne. They were very good friends, as I mentioned. I, I look back at that period of the Truman and early Eisenhower administrations, and I think there are not many people that are remembered. And I mentioned just one, uh, Henry Wallace. Julian Bond mentioned the other day that some of his students don't know who George Wallace was. They thought maybe he was a TV commentator. Well, you know, who knows who Henry Wallace was, although he was vice president of the United States under the first, um, under Roosevelt. He was a cabinet officer. He ran for president under the Progressive Party. Nobody knows who Henry Wallace was. Alice Dunnigan was a print journalist. We don't tend to remember print journalists very much. You know, everybody in this room knows Walter Cronkite. I mean, people on TV. Print journalists, you read the story, you're fascinated by the story, you don't often even read the byline. And, and I, then I think it was, that's it. It's the time, it's, it's her work, it's the time period. But... Her place in history is guaranteed by these firsts. But being first means nothing unless you do something with it. And she did. And that's what's been forgotten. And, uh, you know, even today, it's very hard for any black person to get a book published by the trade press. Our two books are university presses. We ran into this, this same issue. Um, Ethel Payne's book by James McGrath Morris. Well, that's trade press. But he had a very great success with his book, his biography of Pulitzer. So he was already known to them. I didn't even try to get Alice there. She, she had a very difficult time, and finally she paid for and published the, her book herself. But I can say this because I didn't write it. Otherwise, I'd be much too humble and modest, believe me. This is a great book. This is a great read. And I'm so pleased that the reviews it has gotten have, have said so. I'm just very happy for her and for her son, who lives in Temple Hills, Maryland, and her grandchildren, who came to an event the last week at the National Press Club. Any other questions? She got married twice. Once when she was 19 to a, a country fellow who knew she was a school teacher. He came down to play the organ uh, for her PTA events. Uh, but then it turned out he didn't think much of education and he didn't think that she needed to be a teacher. He wanted her to work in the fields with him. And then that marriage lasted five years. She really tried, as she discusses in the book, and then she married Charles Dunnigan, who was, oh, about five years older and had been around a bit. Uh, but it, it turned out he had dropped out of school, too. Here she was, an educated woman who thirsted for education, and they didn't think much of it. I want to tell you, ladies, these were two good-looking dudes. 
and you can see why there would be an attraction. But after a while, that was all there was. <laughs> she had one son. Four grandchildren. All successful, all very happy about their grandmother. Well, if there's no other questions, we have books back here for purchase. And Ms. Booker will be signing books at the front table. And my husband, who wrote the foreword because he knew Alice Dunnigan, he'd be happy to sign books, too. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. How many of you ever heard the spiritual inching along? Well, while we're getting set up here, let me see if I can play a little bit of that. I think it's just great. That's it. I think that is so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>